Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at MintMobile.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. I'm your host, Annika. I'm hosting this podcast because I want to learn everything that I possibly can about the sailing lifestyle, specifically about becoming a liveaboard cruiser. I do this by talking to liveaboard sailors as well as industry experts and find out all the essentials about boat shopping and selection, the costs of full-time sailing, and exactly how people made their dream a reality. Join me and you will get real-life advice, practical tips, and maybe you'll even avoid making some costly mistakes. After listening to these truly inspirational and hugely entertaining stories, you and I will be better prepared to start our sailing adventures. This week, I have a little different kind of episode for you. I'm chatting with John Neal from Mahina Offshore Services, who you might know if you have attended boat shows in the US or Canada, as he does a lot of offshore cruising seminars. John has literally hundreds of thousands of nautical miles of sailing experience, he runs offshore sail training expeditions, and he offers boat selection consultations to boat buyers around the world. I feel very lucky to be able to ask John some questions. We talk all about the qualities of good blue water sailboats, and this episode is absolutely jam-packed with useful and actionable information. So let's get started. John, I think to say that you enjoy ocean sailing is a a bit of an understatement, as you have logged over 377,000 nautical miles offshore literally all over the world, including Antarctica and Svalbard and everything in between. And you also run sail training expeditions, write books and articles about sailing and do seminars at boat shows, which is how I found you. And you also consult with your own clients. So I am very grateful to have a moment of your time. So uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Annika. So on one of the books you have written, and uh, which is available on your website as well, it's the Selecting and Buying an Ocean Cruising Sailboat, 
where you list uh, 20 qualities of an ideal cruising boat. And you talk about build quality. And one thing my partner Adam and I are trying to understand a little bit better is the difference between choosing a 10 to 15 year old production boat versus say 20 to 30 year old, um, let's call them other boats, <laughs> whatever they are, not production boats. And uh, it's a bit hard to evaluate between them because it feels like I'm not really comparing apples to apples. And it generally feels that, well, of course, the newer option must be the better option. So, and I'm wondering whether you can prove me wrong. And I guess the, the real question is, can a 20 or 30 year old boat be a better deal uh, than a newer production boat uh, when it comes to the build quality? Well, Annika, we have to take into consideration a lot more than just the build quality. I really try and encourage my clients to look at the overall cost of ownership. That's more important than the, in many ways, it's more important than anything. Um, the quality is obviously important, but many people are working with a very limited budget or a fixed budget. And so frequently buying the lower price boat ends up costing more in terms of your time and what you have to put into the boat to have it be safe for offshore. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, it, it definitely does um, because there are certainly many factors that, you know, whether you want to put in more money and buy a newer one versus go a cheaper route and just put more time and, and love into it before you maybe set sailing. But there's some things that I wonder, I see a lot of people sail still on older boats and I see a lot of older boats for sale, but, you know, things like if I buy a 30-year-old boat, it comes with a 30-year-old engine. So what's too much? Like I see this on YouTube all the time. People buy a boat and then they end up having problems and, and fixing it a lot. So yeah, I don't know. Is there such a thing as too many hours in an engine? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I had 14,400 hours on the engine on my last boat when I sold it. It still ran perfectly well, had great oil analysis, had good compression, didn't use oil. And um, it probably will go for another 10,000 hours before it needs to have anything done to it. Conversely, I've seen engines with 500 to 700 hours on them that were all corroded out and were worthless. And so engine hours, um, really the most important thing is the care that the engine has received. And so one of the first questions you should ask is, is there a maintenance log for the engine and also for the vessel? Usually those are two separate things. And about one in 10 sellers will have a maintenance log. Usually it's people who are pilots, um, accountants. There's another type of person that tends to be compulsive about that. Accountants, pilots, and engineers. Uh, they tend to take care of things and those are the boats that you want. So yeah, a 30-year-old engine could go for a long time. But parts become more and more difficult to obtain. They become more expensive. And if you can find a boat that's just been repowered, it's to your advantage because you don't get, if you were to buy a 30-year-old boat and repower it, it would probably cost you 20 grand to repower it. Even if you did a lot of the work yourself, it won't add, unfortunately, that much value to the boat. And so if you can find a boat that's been repowered recently, it could be a real value for you. 
in the same book, there's another thing that I was hoping you might explain a little bit more. It's the part about having a, um, a sailboat that is moderately stiff and can sail about 150 to 180 miles per day. As someone who hasn't spent years on different kind of boats, how can I tell which boats are moderately stiff and don't heal over too much and, and can cover that kind of distance? Is there some certain build style or, or anything else that I should that I could be looking at, or is this purely insider knowledge? <laughs> it's a combination of the two. Um, m- just as important as moderately stiff is moderately fast. That's actually probably even more important. So moderately stiff, the ballast to displacement ratio comes into play and the type of material used for ballast. Cast iron is much less expensive than lead. And so lower quality builders tend to use cast iron or any a combo, any combination of weight. And so Island Packet used to use uh, leftover steel and concrete for their ballast. Now they use lead. Uh, but that was cheaper. The French builders and the, and the inexpensive German builders use cast iron. Cast iron has no shock absorbing quality. So if you run into a rock, all of that loading is transferred to where the keel meets the hull and usually substantial damage, meaning $50,000 results with a two or three knot plus collision with a rock. So That's just a fact of life. However, I recommend boats that have cast iron keels. A really good value boat. I have a client considering one right now for uh, under uh, around $100,000 US, 125 Canadian is a Beneteau 393. Production boat, fairly recent, 2000 to 2006. So the engine's not ancient, the rigging's not ancient. Nothing on the boat, if it's been taken care of, is going to need uh, replacement, but has cast iron keel. And if you run into a rock, it's just a fact of life. You're going to do some expensive damage and you might hurt yourself if you're not holding on. Right. So you sort of weigh the um, likelihood of you running aground versus, and you sort of risk that. But actually one of my questions was related to that uh, sort of six knot grounding rule. Well, I, I guess it's a new boater. Like how common is it to even run aground? Like, is that something that you know, happens to everybody at some point, is that pretty much a big thing? Uh, sort of, you know, how common is it? Like, if it's incredibly common, yeah, okay. Yeah. Nigel Calder, who teaches with us, who's a guru, wrote the Boat Owners Mechanical Electrical Handbook, wrote the Marine Diesel Engine Book, ran aground so hard that he nearly tore the rudder off his boat in Portugal. And he, it was his seventh time coming down the same river. But the, there had been a big rain and the channel had shifted. And uh, yeah, everyone runs aground. I've managed on the current boat to make it 110,000 miles before running aground. Nudged a couple times into sand or mud, but at 110,000 miles above Svalbard, 590 miles from the North Pole, managed to run into solid granite at six knots. And I ended up being catapulted over the bow splitting my chin open and uh, be swimming between bergy bits of icebergs while my crew and boat was up at an odd angle. I was pretty concerned about structural damage. And as soon as I could, I dove on the boat just with shorts and a mask and snorkel. And I found an area about the size of a cantaloupe smushed in the front of the lead. 
that was it. There was no damage at all where the keel meets the hull and uh, no leaking, no issues. So yeah, running aground happens. And it just, um, if you know that your boat won't tolerate uh, running aground without an expensive repair, then hopefully it will make you very, very aware of and cautious when it comes to coastal navigation, just constantly monitoring the depth. Uh, one of the people who teaches with me, Pete McGonigal, of owner of Swiftshire Yachts in Seattle. Uh, Pete was, is a graduate of U.S. Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point and has a million miles on tankers as an officer. He said on the tankers, they call out the depth. They have one person on the bridge calling out the depth whenever they're on soundings, just so that everyone is aware of that. We do the same thing teaching. If we're on soundings, meaning 500 feet or less, Someone is responsible for calling the depth out. It seems a bit pedantic, but $50,000 repair to the keel. You know, it's not a problem if you do this in Toronto or if you do it in Vancouver, because there are boatyards who make a great living out of repairing our mistakes. But if you do this in Tonga or in Cuba or in an exotic place, it's a deal breaker. Your cruise is ended. There's no way you're going to be able to safely, structurally repair the boat there. So is the boat a write-off? Possibly. Anyway, it's, I don't want to belabor the point. What we should get back to, though, is your question about speed and stiffness. How do you get that? So I mentioned uh, lead for ballast. Well, the boat I just recommended, the Beneteau 393, has cast iron, but it has form stability. There is a fairly firm turn of the bilge, meaning the boat is not wine glass shaped. The wine glass traditional shaped boat like a Hans Christian uh, is going to heel over 30 degrees and then just stay there. But trying to reef and cook and live and navigate at 30 degrees is very tiring. <laughs> and so a modern boat with a fair turn of speed and stiffness could be something like that Beneteau 393. Now, that's, I don't push Benetos by any means. And when I first started recommending this series, it kind of shocked me. But I just have to be realistic in the fact that many of my clients don't have two or $300,000 to play with. They are working with $100,000 or maybe even less. And so they can find a boat, let's say a Niagara 35. Great boat built in Ontario, sturdy, not terribly fast, but not terribly slow, but 35 years old. Balsa cord decks, frequently mushy by this time. Engines going to need to be replaced. Um, great boat, but if we were to compare that, purchasing that boat for 50000 and putting another 50000 in it versus buying the Beneteau 393, which is going to be faster, lighter, more living, uh, lighter in terms of daylight down below, more comfortable, faster and with 25 years newer or 20 years newer it becomes pretty clear in my mind that we're going to trade off a little bit of sturdiness for gaining a lot more gains i just try and get my clients to think about all the options options they wouldn't have considered that were outside of their mindset and um, trying to come up with this with a good range of options for them and you mentioned a specific series in Beneteau. So from what I gather, there's some lots of differences between different years and different, whether it's an Oceanus or First or something else. So am I understanding correctly that not all Beneteaus were created equal? 
<laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yes. And so there's just a series from roughly 2000 to 2006, 393, 423, 473, that Beneteau really nailed it. They just did a good job. These boats don't have the rudder failure issues that other Beneteaus have. The rudder shaft is uh, fiberglass, so there's no crevice corrosion issues. They are light and roomy down below. They just uh, kind of, um, there's another series of Beneteaus, that, and that is their uh, center cockpit series. And so they did Oceanus 40. I think 42, 44 center cockpit series. And these were designed by Bruce Farr, who's a very excellent, famous New Zealand yacht designer. They were built by the Wakier boatyard. Wakier built the Praetorian 35, the um, Centurion 42, the Hood 38, really solid boats. Well, they were purchased by Beneteau. And before they were corrupted, they built this series of boats. And so that is actually um, late late 90s, mid to late 90s, I think. But if you just Google Beneteau Oceanus Center Cockpit, uh, you'll find them. There are a few of these in Canada. There are some in North America, in the States. There are uh, more of them in Europe. It was never a huge runaway seller like um, their first series, for example. But they are a 100% cruising boat, far, far ahead of their time. They have a drop-down transom, which has only became vogue uh, just in the last five years. They have a fixed windshield like Amel has, which is, in terms of protecting the crew, is fabulous. Um, they have a really good use of space below, and they're very fast. We sailed uh, alongside of one from the San Blas Islands to the Panama Canal, a 40, Oceanus 40 center cockpit. And um, I filmed it. Partly I filmed it because it had a hydrovane steering the boat. And I couldn't believe how accurately the owners were just sitting around taking pictures and relaxing. And the boat was surfing along doing seven and a half knots for a 40 foot boat, heavily loaded cruising boat. And uh, I was just really impressed. And so they went on the dock and chatted with the owners who were German. And I just thought, wow. And then subsequently uh, in the Orkney Islands above Scotland, I went aboard one. And so I've been aboard several of the different sizes and uh, they're just impressive and they're not expensive. So the 40 would be around 100, maybe 120 Canadian or 110 Canadian, something like that. Uh, if you can find one, you have to look for a while. So, well, you bring up an interesting point just in general about the aft cockpit versus center cockpits. I've only ever sailed on an aft cockpit um, boats that are very open and attractive, sort of newer production boats. They're lovely when you're on anchor and such. But uh, what I'm wondering, there's always, uh, you hear this debate between center and aft cockpit. So I'm wondering whether there's actually anything more to it apart from the availability of space or lack thereof. Is there any sort of safety issues or things you should consider when you're thinking about choosing between a center or aft cockpit? Well, Anika, that's a great point. The boat that I've been sailing for the last nine days and will be doing 10 more sail training trips on is a Garcia Exploration 45, designed and built for Jimmy Cornell. Uh, this is hull number two, uh, to do the Northwest Passage. And this specific boat got stuck in the Northwest Passage and had to retrace their steps and then truck across Canada. But uh, it has an open transom, not a completely wide open transom like 
modern boats, but um, a non-closing part of the transom. Uh, and has a very broad swim step, which is fabulous, getting in and out of the dinghy and in and out of the water. But in following large following ocean seas, it's a, that's a liability. The wide open transom is a huge liability. And if you look at some of the new designs, like some of the new Benetos, we have, I have some friends who are um, professional yacht racers and yacht riggers and, in New Zealand, and a group of them bought, or one of them bought a Hanse 57. And every year, they, the guys sail it up to Fiji, and then the wives fly up, and they cruise around together. They take turns using the boat, and then they sail it back. Well, Richard uh, Holston, the rigger that helps me in New Zealand, had just come back on from Fiji, and he said they took a breaking wave. It came right through the cockpit, broke through the companionway doors, and flooded the interior of the boat. You know, it only flooded it about this deep, but it caused thousands of dollars of damage. And he said that was a real eye, real eye opener. And yes, it is a structural issue. It is a design issue and it is a safety issue. Uh, it's not, I don't recommend boats like this. Uh, if you're going a nice downwind sail in the tropics or in the mid, it's not a big deal. But if you're sailing in the ocean, following seas are a concern. So the nice thing about a center cockpit boat is that when the boat is boarded by a breaking wave, not if, but when, there is a lot of buoyancy aft. The breaking wave doesn't just fill up a big cavity, which is the cockpit, which could be several thousand kilos of water. It just breaks down the side decks and kind of goes on its own way. And so from a safety standpoint, it's kind of an esoteric thing because unless you're going into high latitude, or for instance, crossing the Tasman Sea, crossing the um, Gulf of St. Lawrence, crossing the Bay of Biscay, um, going down the West Coast from Vancouver to San Francisco, uh, Fiji to New Zealand, unless you're doing a passage that has potential for dynamic weather, the chance of you ever being pooped or having a breaking wave fill up your cockpit is really pretty small. But it can happen. And if you're looking for true adventure and not ruling out high latitudes, then it's just something to keep in mind. It's not a deal breaker. You don't not consider boats because they have an half-cockpit boat. When Nigel Calder teaches with us, he's a fan of half-cockpit boats. And so he makes a very cogent article, uh, art, <laughs> argument about why he likes them. So it's uh, either way is fine. Half of my boats have had center cockpit Half of that, half cockpits, all have been flooded by falling breaking waves. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Now we talked about build quality a little bit. I mentioned that all Benetos are not created equal, but in terms of other production boats, say um, Hunters and Bavarias and Catalinas, are they all kind of in the same overall quality category as a production boats, or are there really big differences between them as well? Huge differences. Hunter, Bavaria, and Catalina. Of the lot, Hunter went out of business. They were famous for losing rudders. Um, they have ridiculous BNR rig where the spreaders are swept back 45 degrees. You can't ease the main out without poking holes in it. Forget Hunter. And uh, Bavaria, well, unfortunately, Bavaria's have lost, um, I lost track, but last I heard, I think it was up to 17 keels or rudders. Um, they're just, uh, they're lightly built boats, not built for crossing oceans. Catalina, on the other hand, do an amazing job. And if you've been on a recent Catalina at a boat show, or they're very impressive. And they don't lose keels. They don't lose rudders. They use lead for ballast, not cast iron. And they do a great job with wiring and mechanicals. I've never heard of a Catalina losing a rudder. And they built thousands and thousands and thousands of boats. So, yeah, not all uh, mass production boats are created the same. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and that makes sense. Although what makes me wonder now, how does boat lose a keel? Is it always as a result of a grounding or can something else cause that as well? Uh, it's a result of um, inferior design. The loading is just not being spread out. Looking at sailboats, whether they're production boats or, say, these quality boats, it seems well, they're to be... all production boats. So we either have production boats or custom or semi-custom boats. And so we have a broad range of production boats, very few of which, Annika, were built across oceans, the majority of which were built to be charter boats or um, bay sailors. Yeah, that, that is actually a good point. <laughs> I don't mean to be lecturing you. <laughs> no, no, please do. Please do. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> but uh, it just seems like when you're thinking about the type of sailing you want to do in the area where you want to do, it's it's always a bit of a trade-off. You get something, but you have to give up something. So is there some quality or feature you would recommend not compromising on when it comes to, say, looking at a, a specifically a liveaboard uh, a cruising boat? Well, liveaboard cruising boat for crossing oceans or for liveaboard cruising in modest geographic areas? It's a huge difference. Let's say the latter in, in a more sort of west coast of North America. The less your geographic range is, the broader range of boats that will work for you. But even west coast of North America has, if you're sailing to Mexico, for example, you have some uh, cho some choppy weather to deal with in the Washington, Oregon, Northern California coastline. And then if you try and sail the boat back to Vancouver from Mexico, you have the Baja Bash. And it's not just the Baja Bash, it's the West Coast Bash because the wind and the current are on your nose for 2,000 plus miles. Yeah, that's an interesting point and a bit of a coincidence because I did just see a very interesting looking boat on uh, Yacht World that was in Mexico and there seems to be quite a few of them on the West Coast. But obviously I'm thinking of cruising in the Vancouver area. So how do I get one from there and how unpleasant of a ride is it going to be? <laughs> well, Annika, it's, it's the same issue in Florida. It's the same issue in the Med. People make a downwind cruise and then they get to the end and they say, oh my God, <laughs> I don't want to bash into it for a month and a half to get the boat home. So they leave the boat and they leave the boat in Mexico, in Florida, or in Palma de Mallorca, or in 
Greece or in Turkey, usually they leave it for six to 18 months before they decide to sell it. And unfortunately, the boat kind of goes downhill while it's sitting in a harsh climate without being covered. Um, many times people just leave the boat with the food on it and they, when they get to the end of their cruise, they've run out of energy, time, money, health, whatever. And a lot of times they just leave the boat and go home. And uh, the boat that we're sailing on right now, the Garcia 45, the owners left the boat in uh, Alaska actually, and then flew home and then decided they wanted to sell it and then left the boat in uh, Seattle and they left everything on it. It was amazing. I think, I don't think there was food on it, but there was just so much junk left over from them. So that's not unusual at all, that people run out of time, money, or energy and leave the boat. And I imagine that possibly in part that explains the lower pricing as well that you see in, in Mexico versus, uh, say, Seattle. Yeah. But, you know, there there can be some great values. Um, do you know Will and Sarah Curry, really lovely young couple that uh, are the hydrovane dealers. Yeah, I think I heard a podcast interview with them uh, a while ago and, and some other podcasts. Yeah, they have a great website. I don't know what it is. But um, if you were just to Google the, the sailing curries, you'd probably find them. But they uh, were really keen on having an adventure. They had a limited amount of money. They bought a, a junker car, drove from Vancouver to Mexico, hunted around for a couple of weeks, bought a Beneteau, I think a first for 41 or something like that. They spent, it was all outfitted because it had sailed down the coast and they spent a little bit of time fixing it. Then they sailed it to Australia and they had a fabulous adventure and they sailed, they sold it. They bought it for 75,000 Canadian. They sold it in Australia for a hundred and something Canadian and they paid for their trip and now they're doing it again. And they have two <laughs> little twin boys who are the cutest little tykes you could imagine. Uh, so they bought a Geno Sun Odyssey 45, something like that in Vancouver. And they're in Mexico right now. Actually, I think they may be in Vancouver waiting for Mexico, waiting for COVID anyway, but they're, they're going to sail that boat through the South Pacific. And uh, so that's an example of a boat and a deal that worked out really well. That boat would have cost quite a bit more in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, oh, for sure, absolutely. Another thing that I'm I'm generally wondering as somebody who hasn't had a chance to be on a lot of different kinds of boats, um, understanding boat design a little bit uh, is, a, is a bit of a challenge in terms of what to look for or what is negative. Uh, I know in, uh, I watched your boat uh, show seminar and, and in that you mentioned one thing is the the long bow spreads, but is there anything else that sort of, that would cause you to go, yikes, don't, don't do that. <laughs> have you seen the movie Captain Ron? I have, yes. <laughs> okay. If the boat looks like Captain Ron's boat, run. <laughs> the other... <laughs> Captain Ron's boats, uh, Captain Ron, so uh, that was, I'm not even sure what that boat was, but um, it was a Taiwan turkey in any case. But uh, so there are um, several factors to avoid. Long bowsprit, low freeboard uh, tender. All of this makes for a really wet boat, wet meaning spray. Yeah, so there, those are some features to avoid. You know, there's a great book that you would really benefit from, and your viewers would really benefit from, and it's uh, by Charlie Doane, D-O-A-N-E. And I 
can't remember the title exactly, but Charlie's the editor of Sale Magazine, and it's um, it's referenced in my free book, um, Selecting and Purchasing a Boat for Ocean Cruising. There's a resource list there, and unfortunately, I don't have um, the ability to look it up right now, but it's something like Modern Cruising Sailboat, like something to that effect. But if you were to Google Charlie Doan selecting a cruising sailboat, you'd come up with it. But it's good because he goes through, I believe, 30 designs for long distance cruising and he critiques them. And they're really good boats. They're boats like Praetorian 35, really wholesome, solid boats that will not get you into trouble. And he describes a yacht design and what makes a boat better than another boat for ocean sailing. Yeah, that actually sounds like a really good one because I find uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. You always hear people reference certain things. Just, but yes, but why? <laughs> why is that so? And and yeah, uh, thank you for that. I'll I'll have to look that up. That sounds like it would be a, a good resource as uh, in the planning process for sure. So this is a bit of a generic question, and I don't know if you can narrow it down to three. But I'm wondering whether you have sort of three pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who is both someone new to sailing and is looking to buy a boat any sort of good guidelines to follow get out sailing on as many different types of boats as you can maybe joining a sailing club that has a fleet of boats for you to choose from to charter for day use that might be a really good option maybe becoming involved with a sailing club where they have boats that you can choose like a community sailing program uh, and then just get aboard as many boats as you can just to look at the layout and see what the what the headroom is, what kind of space you need. And then learn as much as you can about yacht design. That's important too, and that's why I recommended that book. So you train your eye as to what to look for. Yeah, exactly. So getting some both experience and knowledge um, before jumping into it, which uh, which sounds like a solid plan. <laughs> One thing I did want you to talk about a little bit is the the service you've referenced. You've mentioned your clients a few times here. So you do um, a, a professional boat purchase uh, consultation uh, in which you help your clients find and, and, and purchase boats. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that and, and sort of how long do you typically work with your clients to find their perfect boat? I'm sure that varies. And uh, if you have any client stories to share, I would love to hear. You don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for about 43 years, and I've helped somewhere over 10,000 people find and then frequently resell their boat at the end. There's no time limit at all. I've worked with some clients. I, I don't really have an exact idea, but I've worked with several clients over 10 years. Many times they come to me with this idea of going cruising, but they have kids who are still in primary school or in junior high school. And so until they get the nest cleared out, it's a, there's a bit of a lead time there. And that doesn't matter. I don't, uh, uh, there's no time limit. And then what I try and do is help them look at the big picture, the overall picture. And the questionnaire that I have, it's a one page questionnaire, it's pretty detailed. I hear back from them that that has helped them narrow down their search and quantify when they want to do this, how much money they're willing to uh, budget for it, and where they want to end up. I try and encourage my clients to think about one-way voyages, if that's a possibility. Buy low, 
sell high, like Will and Sarah Curry did. And uh, I have a lot of clients, a lot of Canadian clients buying boats in the Med and in Europe, enjoying cruising that area, which I think is absolutely fabulous. I'm going back to Scotland next year, this time, actually exactly a year from now, and I'll be doing four nine-day training expeditions in the wildest, most remote islands of Scotland. So St. Kilda, Fair Isle, Orkney, Shetland, all the wild places, uh, which I love. Anyway, people go to Europe, buy a boat there, enjoy some cruising around there, maybe pop into the Med for a little bit, uh, cross the Atlantic. Frequently, they join the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers that Jimmy Cornell started. Cruise the Caribbean a bit. And if that's your time has run out, head to Fort Lauderdale. All boats are worth more in Fort Lauderdale than they are anywhere in the Caribbean. But if you're still having energy and time, Panama Canal, Galapagos, South Pacific, head for Australia. Australians love cruising boats. They don't build boats in Australia anymore. And Australia has never had a recession since World War II. Because of the vast mineral wealth, there are always Australians with cash ready to buy cruising boats. I have a customs broker company and yacht broker companies that I've worked with for a lot of years and I've sailed Australia many times and so I've met them. And my goal is to have someone ready to make an offer on your boat before it ever arrives in Australia. And that is super. If you can buy a boat, sell it for more than you paid for, enjoy downwind sailing the whole way, not bash your way back to anywhere. Most people, most of my clients say, I, one of the questions of the questionnaire is how long do you want to do this for? And they say forever until I can't <laughs> sail anymore. Or they say 10 years. Um, in reality, it's two to three years, two to four years before they run out of interest or money or energy or family issues, aging parents, grandkids, whatever pull them back. And so, um, yeah, get them to look at options they wouldn't have considered. So that's what I really enjoy doing. Uh, I work with people in all countries of the world. I work with people in China, in Russia, in Africa, everywhere. But I work with a ton of Canadians. So, yeah. So my goal is just to be a mentor and a, uh, a teacher and help them realize their dream. And it's a very nice job to be able to see the lights go off in people and to hear messages back from them and say, hey, we just arrived in the Marquesas and this is so cool. I can't believe it's we're not shoveling snow this winter in Toronto or in Calgary or uh, in Quebec. So, yeah, it's it's been it's been lovely. And it's my retirement plan. So. I don't have any pension because I've been an itinerant sailor and instructor for 45 years. And so I plan to keep helping people find their ideal boats as long as my hands allow me to <laughs> type and my eyes allow me to read. Yeah, it does sound like a good retirement plan, but no, really, it does sound like a really helpful service for a lot of people like myself who don't have that experience, but are really interested in, in learning more and, and getting into it. So uh, I can imagine that there are a lot of people uh, who will benefit from that kind of service. And on top of that, you do all these lovely expeditions, like you mentioned, up in Scotland and, and elsewhere in the world. So uh, uh, that sounds uh, lovely as well. Well, 
John, I don't want to keep you all day, although I could probably keep talking and then shooting questions at you for the rest of the day, but <laughs> I don't want to keep take too much of your time. Uh, so thank you so much for all this uh, information. And I mentioned all the uh, information, most of the what we talked about here today is available on your website, which is mahina.com. And I'll link that down in the description so people can go find all these uh, resources and uh, contact you for, for anything else. Great. And Annika, if you can link to the free book, that would be super as well. So people don't have to look to find it. Uh, and that has the resources of the, some really good book resources to uh, consider. Yeah, and I will definitely do that. And it has been a really good book. I've been reading it quite a bit. So <laughs> it's a good nighttime reading. Yeah, it'll be time to do a new version of it. Uh, I did that one a couple years ago. And already there's some things that I'd like to uh, update on it. And I just updated the list, the list of recommended boats. So I have like a four page list of boats to consider. And I've just updated that on the website. It's not updated in the book yet. But uh, so every year or so I'm going through and crossing off some boats that are on the list because I hear from a surveyor or a um, boatyard or an owner who says, you know, you've got the CSY 44 on your list. You should take it off because it has a real problem with fill in the blank (laughs) or uh, someone will bring to my attention a boat that I am not aware of or haven't heard of or haven't considered for offshore work. And um, I'll add that in. So it's not a static uh, fixed in stone list. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I'll have to check the uh, the updated version on the website in case there's something something new and exciting yeah. to, to discover. So uh, thank you for doing all that. That's fantastic. Yeah, and welcome. it's really helpful for all of us uh, new sailors. Yeah, and just one other thing that um, I'd like to add is that over the last 45 years, I've developed a relationship worldwide with marine surveyors whom I trust with marine insurance brokers whom I trust and with boatyards whom I've used or who my friends or students or colleagues have used and who we trust. And that's part of the service is as you go on your voyage, if you need to do a refit, if you need to have something done to your boat, if you need to leave your boat in storage, which is what I've done for 45 years, um, I can recommend as part of the whole service uh, services uh, to help you. Right. So if you if you do sort of get involved with brokers and uh, insurance agents as well, does that mean that you are uh, also sort of involved or with the client throughout the, the purchase process? Right. And so I, I learn a lot from my clients because they are querying the insurance companies and offshore insurance is a very, very fluid playing field right now. Very few brokers and very few underwriters are still in that business because it hasn't been a very profitable business with the increase of uh, tropical storms that we, we will experience in the now and in the future. And so um, I always ask my clients, please send me the quotes that you receive from the companies I've recommended so I can see where they are and who they're using for underwriters um, and see if I want to keep recommending them or not, because that's something that takes a lot of time to sort out as to what the good, safe avenues are for offshore insurance. Yeah, for sure. That is certainly a, a big question that I hear and see a lot of my uh, acquaintances who are sailing having that problem. So that is an uh, interesting one. But thankfully, I'm not there yet. So I don't have to think of that just yet. But uh, <laughs> maybe things will change in the next couple of years. Who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably not for the better. <laughs> 
Yeah, Jimmy Cornell's written a lot about that, about how he thinks because of global warming that the hurricane seasons worldwide are getting longer and more severe. And um, all of the data supports that theory of his. And so that insurance companies look at those findings and they say, whoops, we're out of the Caribbean market totally. And uh, so we've lost the largest insurer in the world for offshore uh, passages, which was Pantaneous based in Hamburg. They just completely dropped out of that market. Uh, but it's a changing world. And, and there, when there are a lot of things in flux, there also are uh, opportunities. And so a new company will come in and uh, they will offer a great program for a few years and, they, <laughs> and they'll say, oh, wow, this is not a good uh, business. Yeah, yeah, you just have to snag them when they're still new and still in the business <laughs> and stick with them <laughs> as long as you can. Okay, I think this will wrap up our conversation for today. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Annika, and good luck to you and Adam. I hope you found that episode as useful as I did. Definitely check out everything that John offers through Mahina Offshore Services at mahina.com and go check out his books, which I've linked below. I sure learned a lot from this one. Next week, I have another industry expert interview for you. So look out for that one next Wednesday. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years. Years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.